Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, What's Next in FRC, Emerging Trends, sponsored by Tyndale. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I am moderating today's session. Thank you all for joining us. We're going to start the presentation in a couple of minutes, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speaker and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any other answered questions will be forwarded to today's speaker. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. Finally, if you need basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today is Scott Margolin, Vice President of Technical for Tyndale. Scott has more than 30 years of experience in arc-rated and FR clothing, he has shared his research and knowledge on flash fire, arc flash, combustible dust, and other workplace safety topics around the world. Scott has also written dozens of technical articles and white papers and given more than 1,000 presentations and webcasts on these subjects. He has also served as a subject matter expert for OSHA and the National Fire Protection Association, among others, on a wide breadth of FR, PPE, and thermal hazards. Scott, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Uh, thank you very much. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we have a, a, about an hour together today. The last half to two-thirds of the, of the webcast here will be on emerging trends, but we were also asked to sort of set the table a little bit for folks who might want to crash course as well, so we'll try and accommodate both, and we will get to all the questions either this afternoon or in writing very shortly after the, uh, the webcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, first role, what is the role of an arc rated or flame-resistant garment? We're going to try and talk about some of the, of the uh, emerging trends, and some of these trends are driving a little bit of controversy. Here's one of them. There are actually two goals of these garments, and it's uh, often misunderstood. The first goal of the garment, of course, is to save your life, and that's what most people get. That's the flame-resistant part. Uh, by not igniting and continuing to burn, all our graded and flame-resistant garments will save your life because instead of being in a 10, 15, 20, 30-second fire, which is your, your clothing and covers most of your body, you're in a brief, a very brief, a fraction of a second in the case of an arc flash or a, a second or two or three in the case of a flash fire. You're in a brief directional thermal event, which is survivable, unless it causes your clothing to ignite, and now uh, it's, it's encompassing your entire body and it's going on for much longer. But there's a second goal of these garments, and that's to limit or reduce injury, and that is the part that drives an arc rating or a flash fire rating. In other words, all, uh, when you have one of these garments and they're flame resistant, they're not going to ignite and continue to burn, but that doesn't mean that they all protect equally. So an arc rating will tell you how insulative that garment is, how much energy it will shield you from before you're burned through it, uh, and so will the mannequin test and flash fire. So that's the, the goal of this stuff, which brings us to one of the emerging trends, the, the uh, prevalence suddenly of the designator AR instead of or in addition to FR. Most people understand FR means flame resistant, but there's some confusion. What's AR? Well, AR means arc rated, and the confusion that it's led to is people who have arc rated garments and are going to go inside a site where FR garments, flame resistant garments, are required for flash fire. Well, wait a minute. Am I protected against that hazard? And the answer is simple. The answer is yes. All arc rated garments are flame resistant. So all AR is FR. Arc rated garments have to be flame resistant just to get in the arc rated test. However, not all flame-resistant fabrics have been arc-rated. So not all FR is AR, but all AR is FR. Hopefully that makes sense. If you've got an arc-rated garment, it is flame-resistant. If you've got an FR garment, it doesn't mean it's been arc-rated. You need to look for the arc-rating to see that it has been. So why do we need this stuff? A one- or two-minute diversion here. Uh, I think it's helpful to set the stage for a lot of the rest of, of these emerging trends and issues. 
uh, most people understand you don't want to ignite, continue to burn, that most of the severe injuries and fatalities aren't caused by the arc flash or the flash fire. They're caused by clothing ignition, and that part is avoidable. Uh, the, the area under the clothing, if it's flammable, is often more severely burned than the rest because, again, instead of it being a very brief thermal event, it goes on and on for quite a long time. And we don't want that to happen. So what are we looking to avoid? Uh, most people who think they know the FR business or who will give you these sorts of presentations will not share this piece of data. I think it's absolutely critical to understanding the FR world and arc ratings and flash fire and everything that comes from it. So if you'll bear with me for a minute or two, the medical aspects of flame-resistant arc-rated clothing and body burn. First-degree burn is sunburn. It hurts but it heals, doesn't need medical intervention, and we don't count it because it's really not predictive of anything. Second degree is blisters, and that means that the skin will regenerate. You don't need grafting, and if it's a small enough area, you probably don't need medical intervention. Third degree is full thickness or skin death. The skin is dead at that location. It won't grow back, and you need grafting. Uh, so why am I telling you all this? Well, what predicts fatality? If you're unfortunately in one of these incidents and the surgeon comes through the double doors, and the family and the friends and the coworkers are gathered there. And will this individual live? Will they make it? There are two things that are in the surgeon's mind at that moment to answer that question that take primacy. One is the age of the victim. The older you are, the less likely you are to survive. And the other is the TBSA, which stands for total body surface area that receives second or third degree burn. Well, wait a minute. Second and third degree are very different. How can they be the same for predicting fatality? Second and third degree burn are the same for predicting fatality, especially in the first several weeks. What makes them the same is what underlies the existence of the arc-rated and flame-resistant clothing business globally, the standards and the test methods for all of it, arc-rating, flash-fire rating, it all comes back to the single question of what do second and third degree burn have in common that makes them the same for predicting fatality? And the answer is they both break the skin. It's that simple. Second and third degree burn both break the skin. And when you've got your skin broken open, you have an infection path, right? Where do they take you when you get hurt? The hospital? Where there are more infectious agents than anywhere on earth. So you, the greater percentage of your skin that's broken open, and both second and third degree do that, the greater uh, area you have, the greater pathway you have for an infection to get in your body, and the longer you're in the hospital around the bugs. It is literally that simple. Second and third degree burn combined are what are predictive of fatality. So what's the bottom line in all that? Accidents are going to happen. No matter how good the behavioral safety and the equipment are, people make mistakes. Things age. Equipment fails. There are all sorts of crazy scenarios and things happen. When they do, flammable clothing, cannon does ignite. That's what kills people. Why? Because even if you're working naked, pardon me for the joke, but even if you are, these are directional events. They come at you. If they burn your front, they don't burn your back. So your maximum percentage body burn is typically 50%. But the body burn percentage that's likely to be fatal is greater than 50%. So almost by definition, we need clothing ignition to drive these fatalities. So at the end of the day, and unless you want to change professions, what knobs do you have to turn to stop a fatality? Uh, well, street clothing, flammable clothing, ignite, ignites, you're going to have catastrophic or fatal levels of body burn. So you can't do anything about your age. The other variables, your age, as I mentioned a moment ago, the older you are, the less likely you are to survive because as you age, you heal more slowly. Healing more slowly means you're in the hospital around the bugs longer. So the only variable in your control when all the engineering things go wrong and stuff happens, when that accident happens, the only thing remaining in your control is whether you're wearing fuel or you're not wearing fuel. Don't wear fuel, please. And secondarily, make sure that the clothing you're wearing is rated to the insulate to the hazard you have. It's that simple. So hopefully this video is going to play for everybody. I'll be quiet and let it run because it has audio. In this exposure, to illustrate the difference between flame-resistant clothing and non-flame-resistant clothing, we've placed two garments, one flame-resistant and one not, at a common work distance of 15 to 18 inches from the arc gap. The FR garment has done its job, but the flammable garment is clearly fully engulfed in flame. Let's take a look at that in a closer view. You can clearly see that the flammable garment is already on fire. This would result in catastrophic or fatal injury. 
This is a crystal clear illustration of the need for flame resistant so protective apparel look, and uh, hazards associated with flame flammable apparel, including 100%. I'm warning cotton. you up front here. Look away from your monitor for a minute or two if you don't want to see this. I'm a big believer, anybody who's seen me present, in keeping it real, by which I mean laboratory is great, but we don't live in the laboratory or work in the laboratory. We live and work in the real world. What does that look like in the real world? This gentleman on your left, on the left of this picture, was up a pole. The gentleman on the right did not wear a shirt because uh, at the place he was, this was not in the United States, he got away with that. Uh, he didn't want to wear his heavy cotton. They were told cotton was, uh, was protective. Cotton is not protective. The gentleman on the left had the arc hit him in the back. He's hanging from the fall protection harness. There's no shock here. It's purely arc as the shirt burns off his body. By the time they get him upright in the bucket and down to the ground, in case you're wondering what does it look like when an arc causes a cotton garment to burn off your body, the only part of a shirt that's remaining when he gets down there is the right uh, cuff. And this is what it looks like when your shirt burns off your body. That's third-degree burn, waist up, close to 60%. This gentleman lived for eight days and then died, as so many victims do, of gram-negative sepsis in a hospital. This does not need to happen. This is a result of wearing fuel instead of wearing arc-rated or flame-resistant clothing. Please, let's not let that happen anymore. Moving on. Arc ratings. There's another emerging trend where some folks are marketing around the difference in arc ratings. A lot of people think there's only, you know, an arc rating is an arc rating, and they're all the same. In fact, there are two ways to get an arc rating, ATPV, or arc thermal performance value, and EBT, or energy to break open threshold. So let's take a look at these for a moment. I know it's boring science, but bear with me a sec here. So both of these things are really a measure of insulation, like the R value in, in your attic insulation, by which I mean you go to an independent lab, you test the fabric. It's got to be flame resistant to get in the test, so it is FR. And now we're going to get an arc rating. That's one number. The higher, the better. The, the higher that number is, the more energy the fabric can block before you get a second degree burn through it. Why second degree? Well, we, we just covered that. So that's what an arc rating is. It's a measure of the insulative ability of that fabric to protect you from a given energy level. And if your garment says it's got an arc rating of 9, then if incident energy is lower than 9, you're probably not or not going to get a second-degree burn through that garment. So the, the next piece is, well, what's the difference, or is there one, between ATPV and EBT? Please don't look at the marketing uh, or disregard it if you do on this subject. The fact is, these two things are the same, by which I mean you take fabric, you put it in the same apparatus, you test it the same way. The only difference is how the fabric fails the test. In other words, an ATPV fabric will eventually fail let's say it's a nine-calorie rating, because you've got to burn through it. You didn't get a burn at seven, you didn't get a burn at eight, you didn't get a burn at nine, but you got a burn at nine and a half. All right, that fabric has now, is now out of the test. It's got an arc rating of nine because you got burned through it. Same scenario, test the fabric at seven calories, no burn or no hole, eight calories, no burn or no hole, nine calories, no burn or no hole, but nine and a half, you still don't have a burn, but now you have a hole through it. Well, a hole's not good either. And so that's the mechanism of failure for that fabric. But the fact is they both protect you from second-degree burn up to that point. Once they fail, it doesn't matter what the mechanism is. In one case, you're burned through it, and in the other case, there's a hole in it. So, of course, sooner or later, you'll be burned where that hole is as well. If you want to oversimplify, the difference between these fabrics is that ATPV fabrics are more strong than they are protective because they burn before they break. And the ATBB fabrics, I'm sorry, the EBT fabrics, are more protective than they are strong because they break before they get a burn through them. But the net effect is the same, both protect you to the arc rating. There's a brief picture of the apparatus, which is kind of boring, but the important point here is we have three pieces of fabric that we put in the arc. And uh, we do seven arcs, which gives us 21 pieces of data. And when you do that, here's what one looks like, and why am I showing you this boring science? Well, that will become apparent in a moment. I want you to have confidence in the test method and to understand the marketing around it. The red dots at the bottom and the red dots at the top. The bottom axis means you did not get a second-degree burn. The top axis means you did. And if you look from your left to your right, you'll see red dot, red dot, red dot. And above about 13 calories, there are no more red dots. Where'd they go? They're up top. Why? Because above 12 calories and change, you got a second-degree burn. So that's what one a report looks like. The vertical black line is the computer averaging the data. And the 50% probability of the burn over on your left axis, you come down where that meets that black average line, go down to your bottom axis, it's about 12.4 calories. That becomes your arc rating for that fabric, 
and everything ever made from it. So that's kind of demystifying arc ratings. That's what's behind them. Uh, it's the 50% probability of a burn or a hole through that fabric at that level. But nobody wants a coin flip of why they get burned, so this is another area of confusion uh, that we try to help folks understand. It's not a coin flip. At, at below that arc rating of the fabric, you have little to no chance of being burned through it. Why do we, uh, why do we call it 50% probability? It's statistics. Uh, we do 21 uh, pieces of data, but to have 100% confidence, you'd have to do, I think the number's over 1,000 pieces of data. So then your shirt's 500 bucks. <laughs> These tests are not inexpensive. So uh, like, uh, like anything else, this, you have to look for an area where you have a statistically relevant piece of data, uh, but you can actually afford to do it in the real world. So turning the page, people forever looked at compliance. They, All right, I got to comply. There's a law. There's a rule. I don't want to wear this stuff. I don't want to pay for this stuff, whatever. Uh, and I'll do what I have to do to comply. But one of the emerging trends as the fabrics have gotten better, the fibers have gotten better, the garments have gotten better, is the difference, the idea that compliance and protection are not necessarily the same thing. And so what do I mean by that? We just looked at ARC ratings. And if you need the ARC rated garments, great. If they're ARC rated, you need CAT2, which is 8 calories, or 8 cows, or 12 cows, or whatever it is you're after. You can look, check a little box and you complied. And in theory, in a lot of people's minds, CAT2 is CAT2. Five cows is five cows. They must all be the same. I'll buy the one that's the prettiest color or the least expensive or where the salesperson took me out to the nicest lunch or the nicest golf course. I'm asking you folks to pay careful attention for a minute here. ASTMF 1959 is the ARC rating standard. It's the, the test methodology by which we get ARC ratings. Does anybody know how often the fabric is washed before it's put in that test? If you don't, the answer may surprise you. It's three. Three times. So what does an arc rating tell you? It does a great job of telling you how good that fabric is when it's new, and it tells you nothing, nothing at all, about how durable that flame resistance is to laundering, which I hope is something that you care about. So does an arc rating or a CAT2 number on a garment tell you everything you need to know? Is compliance enough? What about ASTM F1506? To comply with 7E up until recently, you had to comply with 1506. 1506 has a 25-laundering requirement in it. Well, that's better than three, right? But if you launder your garments on the weekends, you wear them during the week, you got maybe five or six sets, you launder them on the weekend, how long does 25 launderings take you? Well, it takes you about six months, doesn't it? These garments typically last three to five years, and you are out of FR durability standards for arc flash in the United States and on this planet at 25 laundering six months. Is compliance enough? What about 2112? That's flash fire. If you have a flash fire hazard, that's 100 launderings. Well, that's way better than three or 25, but you might have surmised because of the asterisks behind 100 that there are some issues there. Those issues are pretty simple. 100 is not forever either. If you launder it 101 times, where's your guarantee go? And how do you prove how many times you laundered if you're not counting the launderings? So that's kind of silly. Nobody does that. They shouldn't need to do that in this world. Plus, it's a self-submitted sample. Think about that for a minute. You get to submit your own sample. Who's going to submit something they don't know will pass? So most of it passes. And the third issue is, who's doing the laundering? Well, there are folks in lab coats with perfect chemistry, perfect laundry loads, perfect water temperature. How... Uh, how representative is that of how your people launder this stuff in the real world? So 100 is clearly better than 3 or 25, but it is not a guarantee of anything, and any guarantee based only on that standard leaves you open to all the things we just talked about. So compliance versus protection. In the past, most people said, well, I want inherent, or I want CAT2, or I want 8 cows, or i got to have 2112 compliance, or third-party certification, or whatever they said. It was a compliance mentality. It's a shortcut. You want one word or one concept, and if it product meets it, you check a box and you move on to fall protection or hearing protection or whatever. But one of the big emerging trends here, again, is that people are recognizing that in the new world of FRC, that might not be wise. And what we ought to be talking about in most cases, number one, is that the thing, the fabric, the garment is guaranteed flame resistant for the life of the garment in writing without an asterisk at the end says something like 
per NFPA 2112, which you now know is 100 lawn earnings with a self-submitted sample under perfect conditions or any other state. It just what a lot of folks want now is guaranteed FR for the life of the garment, period, with no further commentary about it. And the second, third, and fourth, and the rest of the things people like, uh, because there's so much on the market now, that's a good and bad thing. We'll talk a lot about that for the next half hour. Trusted brands and suppliers. If the, if the standards themselves are not absolute guarantees, and folks, I'm sorry to tell you, there is no standard in this country on this subject that's an absolute guarantee of FR durability or anything else. In that light, if there isn't an absolute guarantee standard, well, a lot of it comes down to trust, doesn't it? Proven performance, track record, built up over time. Um, another, you know, so the idea of market proven. And then uh, in 2112, you may or may not be aware, what passes 2112 is 50% body burn. Well, I wouldn't like 50% body burn, and I'm guessing you wouldn't either. You can pass at 50, you can pass at 40, you can pass at 30, you can pass at 20, and lower numbers than that as well. So some folks have started to say, well, 2112 compliance is nice, but I'm going to further specify that I want a fabric that has less than, let's say, 30% body burn. So that's starting to happen. People are also recognizing that weight never really did equal comfort. We'll talk more about that later as well. But especially these days with the, with the two and three and four fiber blends that are now existing in a lot of these fabrics uh, to maximize what the fabric can do in terms of comfort and protection and other qualities, weight is not a, an absolute link to comfort any longer. And so people no longer are often saying, hey, I want the lowest weight thing you have or the highest breathability thing you have. They're looking for a total system package. And then a brand-new standard on the market, which I strongly encourage you guys all to, uh, to specify when you acquire these garments. You see at the bottom there, up to your text 100. You may or may not have seen some of the chemistry issues, and I don't just mean within the FR world. You've seen probably the Delta Airlines uniform issue. There was, I believe, an American or United Airlines uniform issue, uh, typically with formaldehyde. Long story short, a fabric passes the standard you see there at the bottom, the text 100. Uh, it has been tested for bad chemicals, if you'll pardon that simple version of it, uh, and including and in particular formaldehyde, and either has none or what is there falls well below the threshold for concern. And so that is a, a relatively new standard. Most people are not aware of it at this point, but it's highly advisable to make sure that what you're getting complies with it. So another trend here, this is not a trend actually, but this has just happened. NFPA 70E, whether or not you have to comply with it, you should be aware that the majority of the American uh, arc-rated and flame-resistant clothing market is 70E. It's the biggest single market. It's depending on how you view it as large as the rest of the FR markets combined. And so all of the manufacturers of fibers, fabrics, and garments look to that standard. So even if it doesn't apply to you, you should be aware of what's just happened. 70E recently removed all mandatory references to third-party standards. I'll say that again. They removed all mandatory references to third-party standards. What do those fancy words mean? Well, in the past, to pass 70E, you had to comply with 1506 and 1959. 1959 is the ARC rating standard, and 1506 has got a lot of other good stuff about how to build a garment and, and how the fabric should perform. There are no longer mandatory. They're still in the standard, but you don't have to pass them any longer. The reasons for that are varied, but they come down to, uh, to politics, if you will, uh, and, and style, the style manual. Uh, NFPA doesn't want to have to rely on third-party stuff. But what are the consequences in the real world of that move? In theory, uh, and in reality, it's entirely possible now for someone to simply say, hey, I certify that this fabric is, you know, whatever I say it is based on Scott Standard in Country X. And you've got no way to know or to verify because it's a self uh, self-authored, if you will, process. You're claiming your own compliance. So has that happened yet? It absolutely has. Is it prevalent yet? No, but in, it, it certainly could be, and it has taken what already was a relatively wild uh, west out there and made it uh, a jungle in theory. So what does that all mean in the real world? Hopefully this video will play. This one does not have audio, and so I'll talk through it. This is right off of YouTube. And this is supposed to be flame resistant. It passes all the relevant standards. It's absolutely compliant. But the people who had it on their backs noticed it smelled funny. And so they submitted it for testing, and this is what happened. 
Does that look flame resistant to you? Is that arc resistant? Absolutely not. But it passed all the standards. How did it pass them? Well, who knows? Maybe it was because they self-submitted sample and they uh, did something better than what they do in commercial volume later. Maybe there were other reasons. But this was on the backs of a whole bunch of workers in the United States before this problem was discovered. And we're very fortunate that it didn't lead to injury or fatality. Uh, it was discovered in a lab, not in the real world. I don't expect you to read this whole thing, but a large utility in Queensland, Australia, specified the, uh, one of the proven products. You know, this, the product that they ended up buying was a couple of dollars less. They saved, I think, less than $10 Australian per person per year by going with a knockoff from uh, a country that's not known for producing uh, high-quality flame-resistant fabrics. Long story short, put 143 people in the hospital because the fabric itself was toxic. The fabric chemistry itself made people ill. And at the time, there was no test for that. The Okiotex 100 will, will help you with that now, but that's also real world. Here's another one. This is a more, more common real world failure of compliant fabrics, shrinkage. If you pre-shrink your fabric, you've just taken 5 or 10 or 15% of your inventory that's available to sell, and poof, it's gone because you just shrunk it. But if the fabric manufacturers don't shrink it, then it's going to shrink on you and you may buy a large, and now it's a medium, and it doesn't fit. Or you may have to buy an XL, knowing that'll happen, and wait for it to shrink to a large. And in the meantime, it's a tripping hazard and a catch hazard, and hopefully it doesn't shrink to a medium. So this is a huge issue as well, but there's no standard for it. So it's not captured in, in any compliance thing. So at the end of the day, what don't the standards tell us? I mean, everybody likes to rely on the standards. That's what we have to do to comply. But We've just learned that they don't tell us much about the durability of flame resistance. They don't tell us that much about the protection and flash fire because it's 50% threshold. They don't tell us anything about whether the fabric shrinks in flame and, and then therefore you really can't get it off using a zipper. They don't tell us anything about whether it shrinks in laundry or what it costs or how long it lasts. So at the end of the day, what do the standards really tell us? I mean, they're, they're a place to start, but they're not a guarantee. So if you're merely complying, I'm, I'm begging you almost to rethink the mindset and look at protection beyond compliance. Here's another trend now. Uh, inherent versus treated. You may have heard these words, and in the past, they, they were quite meaningful. They were quite consequential. But because so many new fibers are out, and because so many fabrics now, as we'll talk about shortly, are blends of multiple different fibers, these words have stopped meaning as much as they used to. So inherent used to mean the FR didn't wash out. You didn't have to count the launderings. It was FR forever, and that was all good. Where treated may hay, and it was chemically dependent, and it might wash out, and it might have been a surface treatment, and, you know, maybe I had to count the launderings. The truth, folks, about FR fabrics is much simpler. All flame-resistant fibers and fabrics in common use in the United States today are engineered by humans using chemistry. They're all, in that sense, treated. Further, most of the popular fabrics are blends of more than one type of fiber and often treated and inherent in the same fabric. And most importantly, I think, all the quality fabrics manufactured by pro proven trusted folks in the United States are flame resistant for the life of the garment, including the treated ones, and have been so for many, many years. So in other words, treated and inherent, what's the difference? Well, there's a difference in how the flame resistance is engineered but there's not a difference to the end user in how durable that flame resistance is once they're wearing it. Another, another trend here, heat stress has become a big deal. And it's important to understand the difference between comfort and heat stress. So comfort's an inherently subjective property. If you're in a meeting room listening to this webcast and there's five or ten people in there, look around and I'll guarantee you that some folks are in short sleeves and some are in long, some are in one layer and some are in two layers and some might even be in three layers. Some folks are in synthetic and some are in natural. Hopefully some of you are in flame-resistant stuff. But you choose what you choose. Comfort is a different animal. Heat stress is different. And especially this time of year as we're coming into spring and summer and the weather's getting warmer, it's critically important to understand a couple of facts about heat stress, the top of which is no single-layer breathable apparel is a significant contributor to heat stress. I'll say that again. Heat stress is not caused by your clothing if that clothing is single layer and breathable, with the, which the vast majority of arc-rated and flame-resistant apparel is. Whether that clothing is flame-resistant or not, arc-rated or not, long sleeve or short sleeve, synthetic or natural, 
relatively light or a little bit heavier, isn't consequential, according to all of the folks, OHS, CDC, NIOSH, and others. What does cause heat stress? Heat stress is caused by poor hydration, lack of shade, lack of rest breaks, and some illnesses or medications can make it worse. Why? Well, the first way we dump heat is radiant, right? But as soon as it's hotter out, hotter around you than, than, uh, than that, than, than you are, or you're working physically and building up metabolic energy, now how do you dump heat? Well, you start to sweat, right? So that's why hydration is such a big deal. Sweat is how we get rid of heat, latent heat of evaporation, and if we're not well hydrated, we can't sweat that, uh, that well and therefore dump heat that well. So, again, heat stress isn't caused by or significantly contributed to by your arc rated or your FR apparel if it's single layer and breathable, which short of rainwear or the big bulky arc suits, it is. Long sleeve is actually better for you. The single biggest complaint about FR clothing typically is people don't want to wear long sleeves in the summer. But long sleeves are safer for heat stress, not less safe, because the sun is a radiant heat load and the long sleeve shirts block it. So at the end of the day, what PPE should you be concerned about with heat stress? Well, the multiple layer systems like 40 cal arc suits for sure, uh, excuse me, proximity suits in the flash fire world are certainly a concern. Non-breathable things like Tyvek, uh, Kemp Splash garments like that, of course, are, and rainwear. But single-layer breathable arc-rated and FR apparel is not a significant contributor to heat stress. So then when you, you take a look at the comfort and how that differs, how do you evaluate the comfort of this stuff? In the past, people just looked at weight. The sales and marketing was done around weight. But a big trend now, again, because there are so many options, is to say let's not look at all that other stuff we used to look at. The number one driver of comfort, according to virtually all the studies that have ever been done, has got nothing to do with the fabric. That might really surprise you, but it's choice. People want choice. They don't want to be told that they have to wear one color of one weight of one fabric in one style for 40 hours a week. More and more and more these days, folks want to go uh, after work directly to a kid's soccer practice or music or uh, a dinner with friends or they've got errands to run at lunch and they don't want to be running around looking too much like they're in a unit. They want choice like you have in your personal life. So that's the top driver of satisfaction and comfort. Second is fit. It's also not a fabric property. It's a garment property. You might imagine no matter what it's made of, if it doesn't fit, you're not going to enjoy it. The third is fabric. Now we start to talk about weight, hand, breathability, and the other fabric properties. But it's not first and it's not second. It's third. And then style comes into it. Most of us, if we walk into a store where you get your clothing that you wear in your everyday life, whatever that store is, you Ask the salesperson, hey, where's the lightest weight fabric or where's the, uh, where's the synthetic or where's the cotton or no. You know, wh where are all the larges or the extra larges? What people do is they go to, they're drawn to styles that they like or brands that they like. And only then do they start to feel the fabric, look at the price, and make those other decisions. It starts with the style and the brand that makes you happy. So style and brand are huge these days. And then some people that have uh, color preferences as well. So at the end of that, that leads to the third major evolution of FRC, and we'll wrap this thing up, the emerging trends piece of this. With all that said, that's what people want uh, for comfort and happiness and satisfaction and clothing that they wear. It didn't used to be possible in our world, in the FR world. There were basically two fabrics for a very long time, and then a third, and just a few styles, and most of those styles were obviously workwear if you look at them. But the trends that are changing the entire business, if you haven't been to a trade show in a while and you go to ASSP in June or, or National Safety Congress in the fall or any of the other shows, you're going to be blown away by what you see if you haven't been to one in a while. Because there's been an enormous expansion of the fiber types that are available for us to use to build these fabrics. And as a result, there's been an enormous expansion of the fabrics themselves. And, I don't, uh, you know, in the past, the fabric was one or two fibers. But now there are tri-blend and pod blends uh, that really have taken the lid off of this thing. There's also been an enormous expansion of the brands that are available, by which I mean, in the past, you had three or four major well-known industrial garment manufacturers, workwear manufacturers. And their styles, plus or minus a few differences, were largely the same. But suddenly, there are dozens of new uh, garment brands out there, many of them 
retail brands you're familiar with in your everyday life that people love to wear that now have FR versions, you can't tell the difference. Uh, and many of them brand new entries, but they're fashion forward. It's amazing what's going on. There's also something you ought to be aware of. There's been an expansion of the labs doing the work. So it's more important than ever when you see data, the arc rating or the flash fire numbers or somebody claiming compliance, it's more important than ever to ask who did the work because instead of there being one independent lab in North America, now there are half a dozen labs, and uh, they're not all in North America, and that's not automatically bad, but there are certainly, um, there's certainly room for different data to be produced, and that's potentially dangerous. So what does all that add up to? We've got this exponential uh, expansion of fibers, fabrics, brands, garment manufacturers, the whole thing. That's all good for you because if what people like is choice, you have more choice than ever. And choice equals competition, which equals people struggling to get stuff softer and lighter and, and less expensive and more comfortable. And all, and all of that is good for putting a program together that makes the wearers happy. But that's a double-edged sword, too, isn't it? There are implications. And as a result, it's more important than it ever was to have a trusted, knowledgeable FR resource. Now, whether that's somebody in your company that you pay to keep up with this or somebody outside your company in the FR world who you trust, I would almost liken it to a safari guide. You want to go uh, take a walk through the jungle someplace or the Amazon or, or the African savanna, it's probably a pretty good idea if you want to survive it to have a knowledgeable safari guide that's kind of the same thing here. And then I would strongly urge you to write tight specifications, not merely compliance-based specs, and then monitor the program and enforce those specifications to make sure what you said you wanted is what's still happening a year and two and three down the road. And then a top-notch experience service provider. The fabric, the fiber is important. The garment is hugely important. The service provider is hugely important. All levels of this, now that we have so many options, become more important than they ever were. It's not enough anymore to say, uh, without mentioning fabric brands, there was one for a long time. Uh, I'll take that stuff, and I want it in blue. Or, oh, now there's two fabrics. I'll take that other stuff. Way more important now to do all this other homework and, and, and make sure you're doing what you want. So how do you get it? Why, why is an experienced service provider so important? This slide, this is right off of Amazon. I, I hate to pick on brands, but suddenly you can get up our clothing, and I'm not making this up, at gun ranges. There's a gun range outside of uh, – in Louisiana, outside of Baton Rouge, that, that sells FR. Paint and tackle shops, gas stations, Walmart. It's unbelievable the places you can get your FRCs, uh, including off the Internet. This is a ripoff. It's a direct knockoff of a, of a trusted manufacturer. The page is identical to the trusted manufacturer's page. Uh, and you, you would have no clue you're not buying the real thing except for the disparity between the star rating of this particular garment and in the lower right, the star rating of that manufacturer, you might say, well, wait a minute, those are very different. But we buy the garment, and what do we get? You can see the label where the garment came from. It looks identical to the trusted manufacturer's version of that garment, right on down to the fact that it says FR right in the front of it. Not only was it not FR, I'm not talking, folks, now, I'm not talking about poorly made FR like we looked at earlier in an art flash that burned. I'm talking about a $4 flammable cotton T-shirt masquerading as, sold as FR, that is not FR. Take a look at this. Just because a garment you might see out there at retail appears to have all of the appropriate standards, compliance, or ARC ratings that you've become accustomed to doesn't necessarily mean it's so. Believe it or not, in North America, relatively recently, we've had instances of counterfeiting, not just of the standards compliance, but actually of third-party certification to those standards. Tyndale was even able to purchase a counterfeit garment from a leading FR manufacturer off of Amazon. This is that counterfeit FR garment. We're going to arc it in a moment. And you'll notice that the arc mostly goes down. It only barely hits the shirt, and yet it's on fire instantly. We'll get a better look at that from the close-up GoPro. But this is a counterfeit flame-resistant garment. It is sold as FR. It is not FR, as you can clearly see. You get a good look at it again from the GoPro. And as soon as the smoke clears, you can see there is a fire on the garment. Again, most of this arc went down the legs and into the ground, as you saw. The fire very rapidly spreads up the garment, burning the entire torso of the mannequin within just a few seconds of the arc impact. 
This is a very clear illustration of why it is so vitally important to know what you're That's buying and from stuff. whom you're That's buying it and to make sure it is the Be real thing. careful, please, what you get and who you get it from. So what's happening to the future of the fibers and fabrics themselves? Recently, it's kind of become a given. There used to be this big fight, is your stuff as good as their stuff, as good as the other stuff. Protection has become almost a given. People understand now that the stuff made in the United States, at least, is, is all pretty good stuff. And uh, as a result of that, you have less and less differences and more and more in-kind competition. Uh, you, you take it on faith that the, the flame resistance is there, the quality is there. A big change, though, is that knits have caught up. Knits have come a long way for a very long time. If you wanted to buy an FR t-shirt, eh, you know, all right, it was a knit, but it was, you know, 50% heavier than your concert t-shirt or your, your, you know, team t-shirt that you like to wear, and it was expensive. I mean, relative to to a, a non-FR knit, it was significantly more money. But knits have caught up. Knits have come a very, very long way. There are now flame-resistant and arc-rated knits that are not only as light as, they're lighter than a traditional t-shirt. And so base layers, as a result, base layers weren't a big deal. In other words, will I wear FR under my FR? Well, no, because it's heavy and it's expensive. But suddenly, you have knit options that are lighter than the t-shirt you might otherwise wear and not ridiculously expensive relative to that t-shirt anymore. And so base layers have become a big deal. And high-vis has also become a big deal. High-vis is... Uh, uh, was a very difficult thing in the flame-resistant world, but it's gotten better, it's gotten less expensive, and more and more people are turning to high-vis, so there are two trends to keep an eye on. On the garment level, as I've already mentioned, there are enormously larger, uh, there are more manufacturers, vastly more manufacturers of the stuff, and, and some of the existing brands have way more styles than they did. You take one of your favorite denim brands in the retail world, and you can probably know who I'm thinking of, and they had like two offerings four years ago, and now there's probably 30 different jeans in the FR side of their offering, including some that have so much embroidery on the pockets, you can't believe it. So there's more garments, there's more styles. As I mentioned a moment ago, base layers are, are suddenly uh, a very big deal because knits have gotten so much better. But the biggest single trend in all this is what we call lifestyle apparel. So if you look at the workforce, a significant chunk of it is about to retire in the next several years. And then there's a large gap, especially in the electrical trades, where not that many folks are in that 35 to 50 range. So people are, are very actively recruiting the IBEW and others at high school and college campuses. And millennials have a starkly different style preference than, let's say, baby boomers. And so lifestyle brands in general and the type of fashion in those brands in particular is suddenly what's driving this business. The business forever was driven by did you trust the flame resistance? And then what was the arc rating or the flash fire rating? And then, well, was that stuff really comfortable at all? All that stuff is almost taken for granted these days. And what's really driving things now is access to these brands. It's huge, huge. And the last item here is that an awful lot of folks for a while, they got into task-based because it was a less expensive way, meaning you show up to work in your regular clothing, and if you're going to work in a hazardous environment, you put on this coverall or this, this lab coat or whatever. And there were problems with that. There were injuries despite that. And so more and more often, people are turning from task-based to daily wear. That's a little bit less obvious a trend than the brand thing, but, but big nonetheless. If you haven't seen what's possible, and you know, kind of backing up what I'm trying to talk about. Everybody's got a different style preference, but so that's FR, if you can believe it. Here's a, a, a different look, but similar in direction. That's FR. If you like the sport look, the tet look, the, the outdoor fabric look, that's flame resistant. That's flame resistant. This is flame resistant. It's almost to the point where if you can imagine a non-FR style, it exists in FR and arc-rated garments. It, it really is that big a difference. Um, so, on the laundering aspect of it, this was a big deal for a long time. People were nervous because they were nervous about the flame-resistant durability. I'll say again, though, all the quality fabrics uh, are, are flame-resistant for the life of the garment. Now, not everything sold is, but again, all the more reason to be very careful from whom you get this stuff. Uh, uh, my company, for instance, everything we sell is guaranteed flame-resistant for the life of the garment. We will not sell, even if you want to hire us and you come to us and you say, I like garment X. If it's not one of the proven fabrics, we're not going to sell it to you. We'd rather walk away from your business than, than distribute or, or manufacture something we don't know works the way it's supposed to. So most of the stuff can be home laundered. It can be dry cleaned. It can be industrially laundered. There are pros and cons to everything, and you've got to select what's best for you. 
if you're looking at those pros and cons, that's a subject for another webinar, but you can see some of them here. At the end of the day, if you're worried about home laundering, know this. More flame-resistant garments are home laundered globally than industrial laundered by far. It's not close. There are really only two or three countries in the world that have a, a high use of industrial laundry. We're one of them. But more and more, one of the trends is that people are going to home laundering for reasons that you'll see here. At the end of the day, the concerns used to be bleach and fabric softener. And even when they were listed as concerns, and they still are, people kind of rolled their eyes because nobody bleaches colors and nobody wears white in an industrial environment. And, you know, fabric softener, okay, uh, you know, you'd have to put tons and tons of it on there to make any difference, and even then that doesn't make much. But you should know that this report exists. This is a published paper, IEEE, very recently by one of the top experts in the country, which essentially says that they took bleach uh, and fabric softener and ran it up through 50 cycles, and it had no effect on anything, on anything concrete. It did not deteriorate the flame resistance. So you're never going to see that in writing because of liability and lawyers, but at the end of the day, uh, home laundering is a much greater option than it used to be. It's much safer than it used to be because the fabrics and the fibers have gotten so much better, and there's your research on it. In terms of uh, the future of the programs themselves, as I mentioned a few moments ago, People are moving away from industrial laundries. There used to be four major national industrial laundries a couple of years ago. Now we're down to two. There used to be a couple of managed care program providers, and we're up to about a dozen, so you can clearly see what the market's telling us. And the reason for that is, as I mentioned earlier, choice is what drives wearer satisfaction. And you typically get the broadest choice in a managed care program where you're creating a catalog of things you want to allow your people to have access to, and they're buying them using an allowance directly from the manufacturer the way that they would, uh, like an L.L. Bean or something, they have control of it. Uh, things are innovating incredibly rapidly. That was kind of the subject of today's webinar, right? So with that rapid innovation, people want access to the cool stuff that might come out in six months or a year. And you have the greatest access to it in these managed care allowance programs. People don't like the headaches. You know, your job is to do whatever it is. It's not to manage an FR program. These programs take that off the table. You get the tools, you get the expertise, often your costs are reduced. So that's why the trend is the direction that it's in. And then, again, of course, again, the selection and the choice that, that everybody likes. Another trend here is layering. Now, this is specific to arc rating, but if you want to layer up, you, you are wearing, let's say, an 8-cal garment, but you briefly have to work on something that's 16 calories, it used to be a nightmare. I mean, how do you know what gets you to 16? Now, finally, software is caught up. There's a layering app. You poke the number. Let's say, in this case, you need 12 calories of protection. And then you can select from a filter that says products in my closet, meaning the program knows what you own if you've bought stuff from this company. And it says, based on what you already own, what will get you there? Or what's in stock that you can get quickly from the company that will get you there? And once you've applied that filter, boom, here's all the options. If it thinks you own those two shirts, this over that gets you there, or the bottom two, the one on the right over, one on the left gets you there, and there's the exact arc rating. This is a game changer, both from a safety standpoint and a choice standpoint. What do I mean by that? Well, a very large utility recently hired the folks I work for, hired my company, and part of the reason they did so was, was this app. Because in the past, they would only allow three or four shirts on system, despite the fact that there were dozens of shirts that people would like to wear. Why? Because of the layering. They just didn't have the data, and when they did, they couldn't manage the data. They had a stack of paper an inch and a half thick with a binder clip on it that the guys in the trucks were supposed to drive around with and wade their way through to see what over what, you know, got to what protection level. This app for them was a game changer, allowed them access to choice, which meant that their people were happy, which meant that they were more likely to wear it and wear it properly and thus be in compliance, all coming down to something as simple as a piece of software. So the computers are actually helping drive our business now, too. I'll leave you with one last thought, and we'll take questions. Once you've got this stuff, and hopefully you've, you've taken some of what we'll talk about today to heart, and you'll rethink how you acquire it, but it's got to be appropriate to the hazard. It's got to be the outermost layer. You can't put on a hoodie from home or a raincoat from home. That's the outermost layer. That's flammable. That's what the hazard will hit. It's got to be worn correctly, which means zipped up, buttoned up, tucked in. Uh, you do not want to wear meltables under this stuff. You don't have to wear an undergarment, but if you do, it can't be meltable. It must either be an FR or AR base layer or an all-natural non-meltable fiber such as cotton, silk, or wool. And then you got to keep them clean. Flammable contaminants, the fabric won't burn, but the flammable contaminant on it will 
including in some cases things like insecticide or fabric softener. You want to repair it correctly. Folks, duct tape is not an approved repair fabric. And lastly, you want to obviously remove them from service when, when, or when they're no longer able to be uh, repaired. So that's my time. I appreciate yours. I hope that uh, the videos worked and that you found the subject on point, and we'll take questions. All right, Scott, thank you for your uh, excellent insights and expertise. Uh, before we start the Q&A, I want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve our future webcasts. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. Okay, now let's get some questions. Uh, Scott, you mentioned uh, fabric softener earlier, and we had a question about how, how exactly does fabric softener and, and or water temperature affect the FR ratings of uh, garments? Good question. I, I should have explained that, and I apologize. Fabric softeners, the significant majority of them are wax-based, and anybody who's ever seen a candle knows that wax burns. So uh, what you're doing when you're using most fabric softeners is depositing wax on your fabric. Now one time, two times, five times through, no big deal. But in theory, 20, 30, 40 cycles through, you don't wash it all off every time you uh, put it through. Uh, the next time it doesn't wash. So it, it's called accreting. The stuff accretes. And in theory, after a long time, you can build up enough flammable, waxy fabric softener that if you're in a, an exposure, that'll ignite. Now in practice, I showed you that IEEE report by Hugh Hoagland a few moments ago that says that although that's in theory and that's what all the manufacturers say, he could not replicate it in the lab. But I'll, I'll leave you with one other thought on fabric softener. Fabric softeners are designed for synthetic fabrics to stop nuisance static. If you're not buying synthetic fabrics, if you're buying cotton or cotton-rich fabrics or things like monacrylic, you don't need it. And uh, what's it doing? I mean, do you really want to put wax on on cotton, which is designed to be absorptive, so it's a, it's a, a sort of a backwards concept to begin with. Water temperature, if it's a well-made FR fabric, water temperature will have no effect on the flame resistance. You do worry a little bit about high, high water temperatures having an effect on shrinkage, but most garment shrinkage, mechanical shrinkage, occurs by over-drying, not high wash temperatures. It's a common misconception. What you can do to avoid shrinkage, I know it wasn't asked, but it's relevant, as when, when things shrink when they're in the dryer and they're already fully dry and they're still hot and tumbling. That's when you get excessive shrinkage. So pull them out sooner than that. For our next question, um, our earlier slide stated that FR was limited to a number of washings, but uh, this, uh, this questioner asked, you know, isn't that counter to a slide that's kind of uh, midway through this presentation? I'm not sure what that question is really asking, but I'll state that stuff again. Uh, the standards themselves have a three laundering, a 25 laundering, and a 100 laundering number. So to pass the standards, the fabric has to last through those sets of launderings. However, all of the quality fabrics that my company sells and, and all of the quality fabrics that I'm aware of that are made in the United States in particular are guaranteed flame resistant for the life of the garment. They don't say for five launderings or 25 or 50 or 100. They say guaranteed for the life of the garment, period. So, yes, the standards have set laundering numbers because if you have a standard, if you have a test you're going to conduct, you, you have to, it can't be infinity, right? You have to put a number on it and say, I'm going to launder this 100 times and make sure it's still flame resistant. But that doesn't mean that a fabric that passes it isn't flame resistant forever. It may well be, which is why I was trying to make the point I was that compliance alone limits you to the number in the standard, but protection by using a trusted, proven manufacturer of the fabric and the garments means much more. So our next question, what current standard or standards does your company follow for FR and AR? Uh, my, I hate to get commercial on these. My company, Tyndale, follows, of course, all of the relevant national and international standards for FR and AR. Uh, which in the case of ARC rating are 1959, 1506, 70E, the OSHA standards on the utility side in flash fire, NFPA 2112, the associated ASTM standards that tell us how to do the testing. We, we do all that. We have our own lab, as a matter of fact, and do our, all of our own vertical flame testing. We also, at my company, I'm going to sound commercial here, but we go beyond the standards. As I mentioned earlier, 
we have had instances where customers will ask us to provide them with a fabric or a garment that they like um, for whatever reason and where we don't feel that that fabric manufacturer is one of the proven trusted ones where despite the fact that it passes all those standards I just mentioned, despite that fact, we have more than once had to look a customer in the eye and say, I'm sorry, but we're not going to provide that for you. If that's a problem, please hire someone else. That's uh, not how we roll. So we go above and beyond those standards. The standards are nice. They're important. They're a, but they're a starting point, not a guarantee or an end point for us. We want to go beyond that. Okay, our next question. Uh, could you please explain how layering technology works? Sure. So that's actually, I probably should have gotten into that, too, in the layering tool. Uh, so layering. It's not enough to say, let's say I have a, a, a nine-calorie shirt on and I have a coverall I'm going to wear over it because I'm going to go do something at higher energy. And that coverall is also nine calories. So it's simple enough that nine and nine is 18. I must have 18 calories of protection. No, that's not how it works. That is not, I hate to use the word legal, but that's not okay with the standards. Uh, to claim a certain system arc rating, you know, one layer, two layer, there's no such thing as one layer, but two layers or three layers. To claim a system arc rating, you must have the data. And by the way, it's not enough to say, fabric, uh, I've got fabric A and B data. If you're wearing it A over B, the testing better have been done A over B. If you're wearing it B over A, no, you better have, you have to have the same fabric tested in the other order. So you have to have that testing. The reason is that the total is actually almost always greater than the sum of the parts. What do I mean by that? What's in between two pieces of fabric you're wearing? You got your base layer and then you got your other layer on top. What's in between them? Well, there's air, right? Air is highly insulative. So the good news for you guys who are layering is that if you have a nine-calorie shirt and you put a nine-calorie coverall on over it, the arc rating will almost always be in the mid to high 20s, not 18. So you're better off with two layers at nine calories, at nine ounces each, let's say, than one one layer that's 18 ounces because of the air gap. Air is insulative. Okay, I believe we have time for one more question, and it is, are there any um, incidents of concern that have occurred uh, related to the assembly of FR garments, such as thread type, zippers, um, patches, uh, not being FR compliant? Oh, absolutely. Now, less, both less and more as time goes by. What do I mean by that? The fabrics and the fibers have gotten better, as I, as I said, uh, so those things are less likely to happen. But as more and more people have gotten into the business, uh, in particular um, startups and folks from outside the country, you have people who either don't know what they're doing or, I hate to say, don't care, but uh, who put profit ahead of protection, way ahead. Uh, so, yes, we, there have absolutely been instances. All the more reason, in my view, as I've mentioned several times in this presentation, Find a trusted resource in this industry or pay somebody in your company to get smart on this and stay current, and then lean on those folks and look at trusted, proven fabric and fiber manufacturers, garment manufacturers, and service providers. Be really, really careful because compliance is so easily achieved. Be really, really careful um, that we absolutely have had issues. On the patches and stuff, it's important to note that you're not required to have FR patches or FR embroidery. That might sound odd, but the, the standards, both 2112 and, and the ARC rating standards, now say or are in the process of being changed to say it's okay to have small areas of flammable, that is, uh, embroidery thread, patches, heraldry like that, as long as the total surface area of the garment is under a certain number and no individual piece is over a certain size, typically like a business card. Uh, what happens is that this, those things are so dense and so tight to the FR fabric that even if the fabric, the, the patch itself or the embroidery thread itself is flammable, it tends not to ignite or melt. It, it almost takes on the characteristics of the FR garment. So there are issues. Uh, there have been issues in the past in the real world that were concerning, and they're happening more frequently on some level because there are so many more people uh, um, trying to import things, trying to make money, so, again, comes back to, I'm, I'm, I plead with you guys, make sure you know who you're dealing with, that you know what you want, you have a trusted resource who's helping you work through what you want, and then that you're getting what you asked for. All right, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded to our speaker. 
Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. That ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Scott Margolin, everyone at Tyndale, and, of course, all of our listeners. Have a safe day.